This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Well, some good news on the pro-life front. A three-judge panel from the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals has reversed a lower court's preliminary injunction against several pro-life laws in Arkansas, arguing that the U.S. District Judge in the lower court had not given the state legislature wide discretion in areas where there is medical and scientific uncertainty. Now, National Review had noted this language goes back to some of the reasoning from Chief Justice John Roberts in this summer's Supreme Court ruling on the June Medical Services v. Russo case. And you'll remember that was the case in which the court decided that Louisiana state law that placed hospital admission requirements on abortion clinics uh, was unconstitutional. That was the ruling. Where are things headed, though, for the pro-life movement as the battles heat up amid a looming presidential election that will pit a pro-life ticket against a rapidly pro-abortion ticket? We're going to talk about it all with my next guest, the leading architect of the pro-life strategy that helped Donald Trump win the presidency in 2016. She's just as passionate heading into this election about the cause of life as she has ever been. Marjorie Dannenfelser is president of the Susan B. Anthony List and is out with a great new book called Life is Winning Inside the Fight for Unborn Children and Their Mothers. And so great to have you here, Marjorie. Welcome. Janet, it's great to hear your voice. It's been a long time. I love being on your show. Oh, you're so kind. I love having you here. So we got to do this a lot more often, but you are very busy. And I would imagine it's not (laughs) it's not going to get any better in the next few months. Am I right about that? Well, this is true. This is true. But I'm glad for these moments. Well, I am too. We have seen so much go on for the pro-life cause in the last several years, and I want to get into some about your journey concerning the end of abortion being within reach and all of the things that you've been doing. But first and foremost, I've got to get your take on this Democrat ticket where we have Senator Kamala Harris being hailed as this wonderful moderate. I mean, (laughs) on the issue of abortion alone, this is a really bad ticket. I mean, this is not a ticket for life whatsoever. It's breathtaking what she's done and the idea that somehow she would not be seen as a, quote, progressive, which is still hard for me to say that those that uh, what she that term makes no sense to me. Um, She is extremely liberal. This is an issue that she is extremely motivated about. Planned Parenthood has been a central partner in her um, leadership, so-called for her entire career, starting in California. And um, one of her. One of her most important um, self-described acts was to go after David Daleiden in California, who who um, revealed the um, trafficking of baby body parts um, by Planned Parenthood. So instead, when she was Attorney General of California, of, of enforcing the law and going after people who were breaking the law and altering abortions so that you could get the large hearts and the baby parts out... She's going after the person who exposed them yeah. and did a you know raid of his home and I mean it was it was truly outrageous. There is um, uh, you know and uh, there's so much evidence of her making this a priority in her career at the center of it that uh, that she really fills out what is a perfectly pro-abortion extreme um, ticket on that side 
including, I don't know if you noticed this, Janet, but when she was interviewing one of the uh, federal judges that, um, that were uh, up uh, this, this past session, um, she said that his, uh, his being involved in the Knights of Columbus and being Catholic uh, was a uh, disqualifier, basically, for him to be a federal judge. Yes, so I remember that. It's a religious test. Yeah. That's the definition of a religious test. Yeah, I mean, uh, so, she's a zealot, yeah. for sure. Yeah, so this is a gift to have that degree of contrast. Um, <sighs> that in politics, clarity of uh, differences of opinion is incredibly helpful. Gray is not. So it's uh, we understand who the pro-life ticket is and who is not. Yeah, really good point. It is better to have black and white rather than shades of gray when it comes to elections, for sure. How scared would you say the left is right now, Marjorie, about a possible overturning of Roe v. Wade? We did have that setback recently, not only with the Louisiana law, but also the Texas law in 2016. Are they still as scared of the Supreme Court or how do you see this? Is this why they're they're just going all in for as radical an abortion ticket as they can get? Oh, without question. I, I think that that is, that is why they have this ticket. I think also this is going to be the last thoroughly pro-abortion presidential ticket that you'll ever see, hmm. um, because I, I think that they, uh, they will feel the, um, the, 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 uh, the backlash of the, the extremism of this ticket. And I think that what we saw in the Kavanaugh hearings and every, um, and every uh, hearing for a, for a, for a judge you see that fear come out again, that concern over um, Roe versus Wade, and it and it leads to irrational and crazy, um, you know, tantrums at points. But it also leads to really great, you know, political strategy on their side. They know the way where they have to win is among the faithful in battleground states, um, especially in the Midwest. And so they're really trying to remake this vice president into somebody who was a, this president was vice president into someone who was a man of great faith. Mm. So and why are they doing that? <laughs> they know sometimes better than we the consequences of who names the next Supreme Court nominee. That's who, it. And who confirms yeah. those. Yeah, um, I just I just so, saw there's a new group out called Believers for Biden. And I said, man, they're really trying hard, aren't they? Yeah, they really, they really are. And I, well, I look, and it's true, Janet, you are just one of the smartest legal people um, in the media period. And, and I know you talk about this, but they have, the abortion side has everything to lose. They have, quote, achieved every single abortion at every stage at taxpayer um, expense uh, in, in almost every single state and certainly on the federal level in some cases. They have everything to lose. And then we have everything to win. Yes. <laughs> we, have, we have a minor win. We have a we have a win. So they see that crumbling apart. They see that Planned Parenthood in New York, um, where the center doesn't hold because of the racist roots. So they're scared. Yeah. They're very scared. They are scared. They Do, yeah, they should be scared. I, I'm wondering, what are the prospects, would you imagine, if Biden and, and Kamala Harris were to be elected president and vice president, mm-hmm. do you think that they would follow through on their, not their direct threat, but the left's intention to expand the Supreme Court so they can have permanent control over the Supreme Court, thus you know maintaining decisions that are friendly to the pro-abortion lobby? Without question, because they truly, truly believe it. Hard to imagine that someone created in the image of God could believe in abortion that profoundly, but they do believe in this. They absolutely will follow through because of their convictions and because they'll think it's politically what they ought to do. Um, they'll they'll do that. And uh, what I what I work for every day, and I know you you too, is to 
make sure that we know what's at stake. Yeah. And it will certainly be, um, if they win, it will certainly be a, uh, you know, we have a, we have a narrow opening to maybe overturn Roe. Instead, we won't overturn Roe. It'll be doubled down and maybe it will, maybe who knows if we will ever get this opportunity back. We don't know where this nation will lead um, if that happens. And so, you know, those two and, and the president and the vice president now will be footnotes in history when decades from now we're still living the silent death of almost 3,000 children every single day. <sighs> and, and we'll wonder, why didn't anybody do anything about this all, all those years ago? Yeah. Well, you're doing your part for sure. This is not be Anthony Les Marjorie. You have been an absolute hero on getting the vote out. How constrained have you been now that you're doing these sorts of activities during a pandemic? That's not as easy as it was, I would imagine, in previous election years. <laughs> it's a very astute question because you know how we operate. We're very person to person. We have canvassers going door to door in the battleground states to voters who believe like we do that abortion is not uh, the great liberator. And um, and when those and so when the the, the COVID came, um, in many many places we were shut down right away. In fact, everywhere we were shut down right away um, in eight states. Um, so uh, so in some places they're opening up again, and so we are very protected, going door to door. We also communicate through every other means that is imaginable that people communicate by through social media. Um, digital ads and mail and phone and all those things. People do talk on the phone more often now than they used to, which is something I didn't expect to see. Um, one thing I've found is there are, there's a great hunger at home. I mean, I, and, uh, and a renewal of home. And more people are at home. More people have more time. They're less impatient to have the conversation. Hmm. Um, and so it's not all bad, Janet. And I don't know if maybe some of this is going on in your life, too. I've really enjoyed being home, I can see how that works. Yeah, absolutely. I think it actually works to our advantage. Well, good. There's a lot more to talk about. We'll pause for a very quick break. Coming back with Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of the Susan B. Anthony List and author of Life is Winning. We'll come back after this on Janet Meffer Today. With everything going on in our world today, life can seem pretty dismal. We have a pandemic, riots, racial tension, and you might be asking, how can I make any difference? Well, here's one way you can make a huge difference in someone's life, through the ministry of Preborn. Preborn is dedicated to saving babies' lives from abortion through offering free ultrasounds to pregnant women in crisis. And when women in crisis pregnancies see their babies on ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, eight out of 10 times, they'll choose life for their children. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the USA, and preborn centers are often situated in the highest risk abortion hotspots, competing with Planned Parenthood for babies' lives. The mainstream media doesn't want you to know that Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, had a racist legacy stemming from her well-documented connections with the eugenics movement. If you want to help make a difference in the midst of chaos, please support preborn. One ultrasound is just $28, and five ultrasounds are $140, saving five babies' lives. 100% of your donations goes to saving babies' lives. Please call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Here's one mom talking about what preborn has meant to her. Hearing the heartbeat made me cry, and it was certain that I was going to keep my baby forever. Uh, she's been such a joy. Her name even means rebirth and sort of being raised up from the ashes. 
Uh, I now see my daughter and I cannot imagine my life without my happy, lovely, joyful, smart baby. And I'm so grateful. Would you please join with Janet Meffer today and Preborn in the Cause for Life? When you donate, you'll get a picture of an ultrasound along with stories of other babies' lives who you helped to save. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Once again, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. She is seriously one of my very favorites. Marjorie Danet Felser is joining us, president of the Susan B. Anthony List and author of Life is Winning, Inside the Fight for Unborn Children and Their Mothers, her new book. And I love the line at the top of the jacket, the end of abortion is within reach. And I know every day you guys at the Susan B. Anthony List are working toward that end. And you have a lot of victories. And yet you also talk in your book about your journey. I I was very interested to ask you so listeners could hear you talking about being a convert to the pro-life cause and even coming close to choosing abortion for yourself. And I'm not sure how many listeners are really familiar with your transformation, your journey. How did you make the switch? What what was it that brought you over from being pro-choice to being pro-life? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I, I'm very tempted sometimes to say I changed my mind, but I don't think that's true. I think my mind would change for me. And I think it was a combination over over time, definitely but of the Holy Spirit and very, very good people and, and studying. Actually, I was, was a philosophy major at Duke and kind of pushed me into an area. I thought I was going to be a doctor. Instead, I was, was just, went into <laughs> philosophy. Um, but I, I was very adamantly pro-choice. And I think when you're that adamant, God totally sets you up for the fall. And in my case, it was a gentle fall. I, um, I really would have had an abortion any minute and any time I thought I needed it and I could have. And I thought I was going to have one. And it's actually on the very first day of freshman orientation. And I thought that I was pregnant. And I knew exactly what I was going to do. I had the plan down. I called out from the doctor whether I was pregnant or not. As it turns out, thanks be to God, I was not. But I knew I was not going to um, stop my college plans. I knew I was not going to have a baby. Um, and it, it showed me exactly how the thinking goes. It didn't occur to me to think at all, and you know that neither did anybody else about what um, what I might be doing, what that act actually is. And the act itself is later, after I was very I was chairman of College Republicans, very adamant on this point. That is what definitely set me up for for the fall, and it was an inability to describe what that act is. Hmm. It's not an appendectomy, but what is it? It's not a tonsillectomy. It, it gets at something. And what is that something that it extracts is the entire question. Yeah. And I really, in the end, couldn't answer that question with authenticity. And, um, and then also such wonderful people, Janet, like you, people who are listening here, people who are loving and non-judgmental and really just talked it through with me. And then it was like, I couldn't say my body, my choice anymore because I knew it wasn't just my body. <laughs> and my choice would involve another person. Yeah. So that yeah. was, that was uh, a little bit of, of, uh, of what happened. 
Yeah, well, well, it's incredible. And it's kind of interesting because when you came to the point of, of being a little skeptical about Donald Trump, like admittedly I was as well, and a lot of listeners were as well, pre-2016 when he announced uh-huh. his candidacy, you said you were somewhat skeptical. Here was this man who had been pro-choice for years suddenly saying he had evolved and he's pro-life. And there were a lot of us who said, mm, I don't know uh-huh. if I can really jump on board with Donald Trump because I'm not sure I can really trust his testimony. But that's been a point of commonality in some ways, right? Your evolution and his evolution, you kind of understand. And he's been a tremendous pro-life president. He has. And a friend of our movement, a friend of, of mine, along with the vice president. And I think that what, look, politics is different than day-to-day life. You, you, don't, you don't have to bring people in that you don't trust. However, in that situation, um, I really felt it was important to remind ourselves we don't know, we can never presume to know what's in the heart of another person or what their motives are. You know, it seemed really, really convenient, but my thought is we worked really hard to make the abortion issue a a, a, uh, a non-debatable point. It has to be at the center of your platform or you will not get the nomination. So, and he was the guy, he was the nominee. So my, my philosophy was, to do as others had done to me, and that is treat him the way he, uh, treat him in the manner that he has said that he is. In other words, he said he's this person, help him to be even more that person. He's made that decision. When I made that decision, like, it was slow for one, and it was also very unevolved. It was, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong isn't, I know I'm wrong. It's what if I'm wrong. And the worst thing you can do is to start saying, well, you don't really even mean that. You know, you're a terrible person. Um, But help people along in that. So I I think that you take people where they say they are and help them to be the person they say that they are. And I think that this president, I know, I don't think, he has operated as the most pro-life president we've ever had, the most thoroughgoing pro-life presidency that has ever been. And I think that's because we took him at his word. That's great. That's so important what you're talking about and so good that you were there, Marjorie, every step of the way and and influencing the president. You know, it's interesting, though, as he is the most pro-life president in history, we see the left going even more radical to the other direction. We have Governor Ralph Northam's unconscionable remarks about babies being allowed to die who survive abortions. It was horrendous. We had the radical laws passed in New York, a radical law passed in Illinois. You know, we're so polarized now. How do you bridge that gap? It seems that there are fewer and fewer who are really in the middle saying, I'm not sure which side to be on. But how do you overcome the radical extremism on the part of the pro-abortion lobby now? Because this is just these people are off the reservation, in my opinion. Well, you know, I I tell us uh, several stories in the book that actually, I think, answer that question. One of them is to. One of them is about the, the president and, and him going into the State of the Union message and what he decided to say, what he decided to say. Um, um, and he decided to make very central to his speech Ralph Northam's words, yeah. what he had said about allowing a baby to die. So few people um, agree with that extremism. It's a percentage of a percent that think that that's okay. And so when you expose that and you provide the contrast between that and a message of life, um, that, that is how I think it's exposed and how you overcome it. Yeah. Right now, people think that they're, it, people who say that they're pro-choice, almost all are against abortion after the first trimester. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, they're really not the extremes, even though they say they're pro-choice. So when you just drill down and you find out what really people think, way more people are for us and for the life for the life cause. And those are the, largely the people that we're talking to when we go door to door. We're not necessarily talking to them about you're not pro-life unless you believe it from the minute one and therefore vote for uh, for candidate X. We're saying if you think that it's not okay to allow a baby to die because of a quote failed abortion, then uh, you definitely are not in line with with this candidate, and you are in line with that candidate. And they might not have known it before. That's good. Yeah, just telling people what their choices are. And and there have been yeah. so many pro life victories over the last four years that have been exciting. But also there are more victories that we need to accomplish. And especially in wake of the disappointing Louisiana decision at the Supreme Court. What are some of the pro-life battles ahead, Marjorie, that you think are important for pro-lifers to know about and to concentrate on? And maybe some of the issues that you're going to be concentrating on in federal and also, you know, the state levels. Yeah, I mean, we plan to win this presidency. We plan to see the court start rolling back roads so that states can start to enact laws that reflect the will of the people. And ultimately, our entire nation ought to be that way. But the beginning steps will be allowing governors and legislators and the people of states enact their own laws and they be upheld by a court and not continually struck down. Uh, getting to that point, so right now, um, I, we have really focused um, very um, avidly <laughs> on a couple of types of bills that we think get to the heart of Roe versus Wade. And we've been working with legislatures and governors to enact these laws. And they are laws like non-discrimination bills, bills that say you can't abort a baby because they have Down syndrome, because of their ethnicity or gender. And then also later term abortion bills like the 20-week bill. Um, Both of those get to the heart of Roe and the viability rule of, of Roe. And that's where we want the court to speak. And so that's how we see the thing getting unwound. And those bills are passing all over the country. Um, so I think that's the, the, I believe that's the beginning of the undoing of Roe. I love that. That's really good. Yeah. You know what else is Arkansas? I'd mentioned at the outset of the show. Yeah. And Arkansas is one of a few states that has attempted to ban dismemberment abortions. And I know there was a bill in mm-hmm. Nebraska that just passed the state legislature. How much momentum do you think that effort has banning that sort of abortion? Mm-hmm. Because that would certainly resonate with a lot of the voters that you were talking about a couple of minutes ago. Well, I think it's really interesting. I think the way the court behaves is far more common sense than most people think. Yes, there are a lot of precedents. There's a lot of complicated jurisprudence that goes into it. But there's also some paying attention to what is happening in the nation and a need for the court to speak and allow uh, legislators to start speaking to what the people say they want. And that's what Roberts did say, even though he was disappointing recently in the June medical decision about Louisiana's abortion clinics, he did say that. <laughs> he did say uh, questions about ty- these types of questions, meaning the dismemberment abortion, um, that these are the types of things that legislators are wanting to look at and want to speak to, and how much levity do we give them? Um, and, and look, whether that is upheld or not, which seems unlikely because it's uh, it might, might, who knows, it could be the thing to overturn it. It also was relatively early. So I'm not really sure if it would, but but who knows? Right. But one thing we know is that people are talking about what an abortion is at that stage. It's it's a dismemberment abortion. So if people say, well, what do, what does that mean? I mean, you can kind of envision it already. <laughs> yeah. But already you're saying you're you're making 
just by naming it and talking about it, you're making an argument that the court thinks it needs to look at. Yeah, really important point. And you're right. We don't know which case finally will come before the Supreme Court that would allow Roe to be overturned. But we know we've got to get there and we need to continue to pray and work. And I know that you guys at the Susan B. Anthony list are all on it. And we're grateful for your work and grateful for your book. Marjorie Dannenfelser's book is called Life is Winning Inside the Fight for Unborn Children and Their Mothers. Just a wonderful read. So important. And Marjorie, we just love you. Thank you so much for being here again. Thank you. Uh, same back to you. I, I love talking to especially moms who are doing all this from, you know, basically from their living rooms. And I know you're in the studio, but uh, you can really change the world from your living room. I, I love it. That. Amen. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. <laughs> Thanks, Marjorie. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, the longer this pandemic goes on, the more Christians are seeing the authoritarianism of politicians. It's one thing to slow the spread, and it's quite another thing to tell Christians that they can't sing in their churches while abortionists and liquor store merchants enjoy their time as essential businesses. But as legal cases mount and the challenges grow, who will win the battle between the First Amendment and the politicians who are convinced of the benefits of authoritarian governance against our churches? My next guest believes it will be religious liberty that ultimately prevails, which is great news. And he's just written about it over at Newsweek. So we're going to talk about it now with Jeremy Dice, who is special counsel for litigation and communications for First Liberty Institute. Great to welcome you back, Jeremy. How are you? Always good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You know, it's weird. You kind of did a timeline in your piece about how it started with Slow the Spread. And now we've got banning singing. I mean, how do you look at this timeline and make sense of it? Well, I think it's the new prohibition that we've lived through here, right? That before it used to be alcohol that they tried to prohibit, and that didn't work out so well, did it, for, for, uh, for the United States government. And we had to actually ultimately repeal that amendment that, that instituted prohibition. Well, we're kind of going through the same thing right now with, when it comes to religion. The, these government officials kind of got drunk on their own power, and they started instituting these guidelines that took the form of some sort of dictate that the, the people of America were supposed to follow without any kind of question. And the thing that chiefly seemed to be in their targets in their their sites was the issue of religion. So first it was, you can't even go to your, your church parking lot and park there to listen to a sermon in your car, because maybe the virus will seep in through your closed doors and windows to, to get you there. Uh, and, and don't forget the mayor of Louisville who instituted that, he was going to send his police to write down license plate numbers and force you into a 14-day quarantine period, which we could also just call a house arrest for 14 days in order to, quote, slow the spread. And so we kind of gave up these liberties. Look, my point in all of this is to say that what the government tried to do as they continued to be drunk on their own power was to, to force people into things when they should just simply reason with them. But by forcing them into these things and prohibiting their religious beliefs, they've had the unintended consequence of actually probably doing more harm than good. 
I think so too. But what do you make of the fact that when they do get drunk with power, their target seems to be over and over and over again, churches? Why is that? Why, why is it that they go after churches? Well, my theory on that is that if you're going to be sort of authoritarian and totalitarian in governance, you can't have any competitor to that. Mm-hmm. And since religion presents the most objective form of truth, they can't have any question mark to that. If you're going to be authoritarian, you have to be the truth. And so if you're going to have a religion that says, no, 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 there's something that even this mayor or governor or president has to submit to, well, they can't have any competition to that. And so they try to shut down religion more than they allow for its exercise. Yeah, it's really disturbing. And you had some early cases that went the right way, you know, when we saw those drive-in services and the you know threats of fines and arrests and things like that. And you had some good success. These judges came around and, you know, you had Bill Barr, the U.S. Attorney General, weigh in and, and support churches and all of this. But now you've got California telling Christians they can't sing, saying you can't have indoor church services, really clamping down on people. And this is not tied to the science of the whole situation. There's not scientific data saying that if you lock down the churches, this is all going to come out in the wash. I mean, at at what point do you finally have even non-Christians come up and say, just let the people meet? If people can be at Walmart and Home Depot and, and your local abortion clinic, what are you picking on churches for? Yeah, and I think every American is asking that same question right now, going, I mean, come on, really? What are you going to do? Uh, Governor Newsom, are you going to actually send the SWAT teams out to John MacArthur's church and padlock the doors and, (laughs) you know, frog march people out of there for daring to come to religious services? I mean, is that really, are we going to send the National Guard to Grace Community Church while while Governor Newsom stands on its steps, sort of George Wallace-like, trying to defend against anybody coming to freely exercise their religious beliefs? Is that what it's going to come to? Uh, look, I, I think the American people intuitively know that these, these elected officials are full of themselves, and that they, they, have, they, they are like the emperor with no, no clothes, right? That they, they actually are gr- kind of garbed in power, but they maybe don't have the authority that they think they do. And again, if, if we can assume the best interest of our local officials on this, that they truly want to preserve the health and safety of their people by preserving, you know, people, keeping people away from one another and, and getting through this virus. I think they've had the unintended consequence of, uh, of their actions, which is to say that what they ought to be doing is providing the guidance that is necessary, the, the, the reasons and the, the science that is out there that our government is uniquely able to provide to us to, so that we, the people, can make decisions. That's what freedom requires, is this trust between the elected and the elector, those who are ruled by those who elect them to, be, to rule. Uh, and when that trust breaks down, as it has here, I, I think what you see is people saying, well, forget you, we'll find creative ways uh, of doing this ourselves. And so yeah. they're holding services in casinos. They're <laughs> going to church in Walmart, on the beach, and other places. If it takes converting casinos into the modern-day catacombs, religious liberty is going to prevail here. Yeah, yeah, people are determined. It's hard to squash an American because we have that so so tightly around our heads. You know, we're going to be free. We want to worship God according to the First Amendment. We have the right to do that. But you bring up Nevada. This is a really important thing because the Supreme Court got it wrong, in my opinion, here that they backed the state for limiting churches to gatherings of 50 people, while, as you mentioned, you know, the casinos, they're allowed to operate at 50% capacity. So this is also disconcerting for a lot of Christians. What do we do when the Supreme Court can't even get it right? We don't have a higher authority to go to. 
Look, I, I have no good explanation for that. I, I wish I did. I can only point you to the words of Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, who rightly pointed out how absolutely absurd the court's decision actually was. And so I, I hope we'll have another chance to go back there and fix that at some point. But it, it is just frightening when Chief Justice Roberts says that, uh, you know, you can spend 45 minutes, an hour and a half inside of a laundromat, <laughs> but you can't spend that much time inside of a church. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And uh, to borrow from Justice Gorsuch to say that you can bend the knee to Caesar's palace, but not to a church doesn't make any sense either. No. Uh, and so, look, I, I think we need to get back as a country to reminding our elected officials for whom they work. Uh, and that this balance between individual liberty and individual responsibility is one that they play a critical r- role in, but they can't continue to say the sky is falling without actually presenting a few raindrops here and there. <laughs> that they've point. actually got to demonstrate that there is a problem here and then allow, like Governor Nome did in South Dakota, trust their people to be able to make the right decisions. That's what we call freedom in this country. We marry that liberty with our own individual responsibility, and we have a wonderful society that comes out of that. We have failed to provide that in this country, and we're reaping the, the results. We are. Jeremy, do you expect that things will suddenly take a turn the first week of November, depending on how the election goes? Wouldn't that be shocking? <laughs> Look, I think anything's possible in 2020. I wouldn't let anything get by this year. Uh, who knows what will happen on November 4th or whatever date it is the day after the election day this year. Look, it, it, it's bizarre that we have politicized one of our fundamental freedoms, but is it really any surprise? We, we've really lived through these last couple of months what the left has called the freedom to worship. Go inside your house. Worship in a virtual environment. Don't go outside. Don't exercise your religion outside of those four walls of your house. And certainly don't take your religion into your place of work or, or into your, your place of education, because you'll infect the rest of us with this religion stuff. Uh, but that's not the free exercise of religion that the Founding Fathers envisioned for us. And, and, and the more that our elected officials try to insist upon this phony uh, freedom to worship, the more the people of these United States, I truly believe, will reject that ridiculous thought and insist upon the free exercise of religion. We fought a revolution over this at one time in our history. I don't know that the American people would be pushed that hard to have to do it once more, but they're doing it with their feet already, going to the beach or going wherever they may be, uh, John MacArthur's church and many other places, because they know Governor Pritzker doesn't have any authority to shut the church down for a year, nor does Mayor de Blasio have any authority to permanently shut down synagogues. Uh, And so they're not going to allow that thing to stand. Well, not to mention that they see how these same politicians react to leftist protesters. It's a total double standard. You know, the jig is up. Everybody sees what actually is going down. But you feel confident religious liberty will prevail eventually. This is this is good news. I hope we can all get on board with that that thought because it needs to prevail. Look, that's what we're doing at First Liberty Institute every single day. We defend religious liberty for all Americans. And yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's really hard, especially when you have Some really bad cases go against you on these things. But by and large, we're finding success in the face of a a country that is openly and more and more hostile to religion. I I hope folks will join us at firstliberty.org. Very good. Jeremy Dice, so good to talk to you again. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. You take care and you can check out Jeremy Dice's piece over at Newsweek.com. Thanks for being with us. We'll be back. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. 
As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back. There was a good piece in the Wall Street Journal just a few days ago that really caught my eye. Sometimes I come across an article that really grips me because it hits upon a subject that just is so important and not enough people are writing about. And then I say, ah, got to share that with listeners. This was one written by Greg Lukianoff and Adam Goldstein. And Greg Lukianoff is with the group FIRE. They're the group that really defends free speech. And it was a an article called Law Alone can't protect free speech. If today's cultural trends continue, judges will eventually curtail First Amendment rights. Now, we were just talking with Jeremy Dice about the First Amendment and religious liberty eventually prevailing. But the upshot of this piece is that free speech culture is what has emboldened free speech laws to actually have teeth. In other words, you have what is written on the page, but if you don't have people actually believing that that's the correct principle to impose on society or to give people freedom in this case, then eventually you just have a piece of paper. And honestly, when you look at the U.S. Constitution and how the left treats it, that's where the left is. We don't really care what's on the piece of paper. We're going to do whatever we want. And we'll come through any loophole we can find. We'll find any sort of crazy trick that we can figure out through some very creative lawyers to get what we want through. And it doesn't really matter if we're following the Constitution. They're experts at that. But what made me really think about this is when you're talking about the free speech culture, we also have to consider the religious liberty culture because that is part and parcel of the First Amendment as well. So I wanted to share a little bit of what these guys wrote about. Cancel culture notwithstanding, legal commentator Ken White argues that this is a golden age for free speech in America. And for decades, he notes, the Supreme Court has protected all manner of objectionable speech. 
things like burning the American flag. But those victories, they point out, rest on a broad cultural consensus. If campus norms continue to displace free speech culture, judges and lawyers will eventually start to ignore the First Amendment or worse, chip away at it until it's meaningless. Free speech culture gave us the First Amendment to begin with. Well, I would actually say free speech culture did give us the First Amendment to begin with, but that was undergirded by a biblical worldview, even though not all the founders were Christians. There was a Christian understanding of our creator and the inalienable rights that our creator gave to us. So that's why you have several ideas packed into the First Amendment, among which are free speech and freedom of religion. Remember who founded this country originally, as far as the modern United States, is the pilgrims. And they were being persecuted over in England, and they came here to the free world to try to you know, establish a new world in a place where they would not be persecuted. This is our entire founding. It's amazing to me how many Christians are not talking like this right now. It just boggles my mind sometimes how quickly we forget history and how quickly we forget that being Christians who are encountering any sort of persecution is about as American as it gets. Going back to the history of the Mayflower and coming over here to escape persecution. At any rate, they go on to say, this is very much in doubt the First Amendment, considering the state of those norms in higher education. And they say when their organization, FIRE, was founded in 1999, and back then, if Princeton investigated a professor because he wrote an op-ed disagreeing with activist demands, or the public called on Auburn to fire a professor for expressing anti-police views online, or something like that, it would be a really bad semester. All this happened within two weeks last month. And the fall semester hasn't even begun. And as students graduate, cancel culture norms spread beyond campus to newsrooms, corporate boardrooms, and sooner or later, courtrooms. So what is free speech culture? It's folk wisdom, like it's a free country. That was one of the things we used to say to each other as kids. Somebody would say something you didn't like and you'd say, it's a free country. And I opined not too long ago on Twitter. Do kids say that anymore? I don't know if they say that anymore. Sentiments like to each his own or everyone's entitled to his opinion. You can find these things all over First Amendment law. Freedom to differ is not limited to things that do not matter much. The justices observed in a 1943 case, West Virginia Board of Education v. Barnett. So they cite some of these other cases. Anyway, it's a good piece and you should read it. But here's the thing. If you don't have a corresponding culture to undergird these free speech laws, you will eventually lose your free speech. So where do these battles get fought? To me, the first place that you fight this battle is inside your church. Inside your church. I'm not saying that you have a constitutional class in your church necessarily, but considering that the Bible undergirds all of these ideas in the first place, Christians ought to be talking about these things. Why do I have the right to religious liberty? Not because Nancy Pelosi got nice one day and decided, okay, fine, you can have your wrong opinion. No, Nancy Pelosi would never give you free speech and would never give you freedom of religion if it were left up to her, because that is not her worldview. And I'm not trying to pick on Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, necessarily. None of these leftists would give any of this to you. But the founders recognize the power of government to tyrannize. Again, this is a fundamentally American idea. This is why we fought an American revolution to secure our freedoms. So what happens when the culture begins to turn against religious liberty? Folks, we're already there. We're already there. And that's exactly what you're seeing with these coronavirus crackdowns and the unfair treatment that many people are experiencing in states like California and Nevada and Illinois and New York. Maybe not in your state. 
But, you know, praise God if you're in a state where you're not having to go through all this kind of stuff. I mean, six months, what is it, five, six months now? And now we're discovering that you have something like when you hit a 20% threshold in terms of, um, you know, the pathogens, or not the pathogens, but in terms of the caseload and people who've been infected and have the antibodies from COVID-19, it kind of levels off. That's what they're now finding out now that we're down the road several months. Are you going to let people open the churches now, guys? I don't think they want to open the churches until November. And even then, depends on who wins. Maybe they won't open the churches then. So we're going to be in a showdown, but we got to be ready to fight. We got to be ready to stand up for what the Constitution has granted to us. You know, that that's we're the people. We're the people. We govern this country, at least theoretically. We're the ones who elect representatives. We're the ones who elect senators. We're the ones who elect a president through the Electoral College, of course. So why don't we ever get a say? These are important things. And meanwhile, we have outlets like Christianity Today working really, really hard to make sure you vote the right way, which in their case is blue as blue can be. Uh, they, this is just crazy. They had this article, Joe Biden campaigns on faith. Oh, yes. When I think Joe Biden, I think person of faith. Yes, I do. It's kind of funny because they quote Richard Mao, who's the former president of Fuller Theological Seminary, super far left. He says of Biden, he is viewed as having an authentic faith. He may not be the conservative Catholic that a lot of evangelicals would like him to be, but when he talks about his faith, it rings true. It does? It rings true? I hear Joe Biden saying not, not things like that. What, what is he talking about? And it says evangelicals might have this response to Biden. They're hoping that the evangelical base that supported Trump will break off for Biden. Good luck with that. Mao has this quote, though, which I found hilarious. He said, most evangelicals didn't care about the Catholic Lutheran dialogue on justification. They said, I know a Catholic at work and he loves the Lord. People believe Biden's faith is real. He has a pastoral tone. <laughs> All right, so he's out insulting union workers as, you know, dog pony soldiers. And there is, I know I'm botching that, but you know how he insults people on the campaign trail? He has a very pastoral tone. Okay, when he's calling the, the founding documents the thing and he can't even remember the, the quotation that he's trying to think of. Yeah, it's very pastoral. Mao goes on to say, a lot of evangelicals who support Trump do worry about his mean spiritedness and the polarization. And we've been missing that pastoral tone. Mao told Christianity Today he plans to vote for Biden, despite some qualms about the Democratic Party's positions on abortion and religious liberty. Is that what it comes down to now? You can vote for a pro-abortion candidate and you can vote for a candidate that gets behind the party that has support for these rioters in the streets who are pounding guys in the head and knocking them unconscious with blood dripping down their necks in the streets of Portland. They're supporting these kinds of activities across the nation. Uh, as long as you have qualms. Yeah, I have qualms. I have qualms about what goes on. I have qualms about abortion. I have qualms about religious liberty. But Biden, he of the pastoral tone, that's who you need to vote for. And they go on basically to say, oh, well, white evangelicals also may not choose to vote. This is from Sean Casey, former director of the U.S. State Department's Office of Religion and Global Affairs under Secretary John Kerry. 
white evangelicals may also choose not to vote. You know what? In my view, that is Christianity today crossing its fingers and working hard with their friends on the left to try to make it so. It's a dream. It's a dream. They want Christians to stay home. They want Christians to go left. They want everybody to become woke. They want white evangelicals to see their white fragility and what horrible supremacists they are and then immediately subscribe to Christianity today so they know what to think from now on. That's how I see it. But we are out of time. Thank you for joining us. As always, we appreciate your being here and tuning in each day. We love having you here. We'll see you next time. God bless you. And we'll look forward to our next round of fun. Take care. We'll see you next time.